The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association of Anatomists. The American Association of Anatomists is a scientific membership organization advancing anatomical science through research, education, and professional development. For information on its range of membership options, scientific meetings, and available grants and funding, please visit www.anatomy.org. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, are we making a mesh of the pelvic floor? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Welcome, everybody. We have a great topic again today. We'll be focusing on the pelvis. We have a great team here today to help discuss this topic. Hi, my name is Jonathan. I'm a fifth-year medical student. Hi, I'm Helena Frawley. I'm a pelvic floor physiotherapist. I work at Monash University and Cabrini Hospital. Hi, my name is Dr. Anna Rosamilia. I'm a urogynecologist. I'm head of the pelvic floor unit at Monash Medical Center. Anna, could you talk a little bit more about what a urogynecologist urogynecologist is? A urogynecologist is a subspecialist who's done training in obstetrics and gynecology and done another three years in urogynecology. Our area of focus is urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic floor dysfunction. And in the same way as Helena is a specialist physiotherapist in pelvic floor dysfunction, we're a specialist gynecologist in pelvic floor dysfunction. So recently, there's been some controversy about the use of mesh products to treat vaginal prolapse. And I was just wondering if we could have a bit of a discussion about that today. Maybe before we do, we could just have a chat about the pelvic floor and what that actually is. I think that's a great way to start this conversation. The pelvis and the pelvic floor is one of the most complicated areas of anatomy. So when we're thinking about where the pelvis sits, if you put your hands on your hips, that's essentially the bony structure that creates the space that the pelvic floor sits in. The frame of the bowl is the bony structure. And then we need to build in the walls of this bowl. So the, the walls of the pelvic floor are muscles. These muscles help hold the critical components of the pelvis in place. These structures, visceral structures, are the bladder, which holds urine, the uterus, which will hold developing babies, and the rectum, which holds fecal matter. These walls help keep these pelvic structures inside the bowl. If there's a problem with these muscular structures, these walls, you can imagine a situation where these visceral structures, the bladder, the uterus, or the rectum, fall through. Just to clarify, what's visceral? Visceral is the same as organs. So these are structures that are inside our body cavities that we can't see or touch outside. Surely the pelvic floor is different in males and females though, right? So actually the pelvic floor itself, the walls that are holding the visceral contents inside are similar with males and females. The major difference is the visceral organs that sit on those walls. 
So specifically, the bladder and rectum are the same in males and females. The prostate, however, is the structure in males that replaces the location of the uterus in females. In my reading, I've also come across the term perineum. Perineum would, if we go to our bowl analogy, be your hands that are holding the bowl. So the bowl holds contents inside. Those are inside your pelvis. The perineum is external to that bowl, and that's the location of your external genitalia or external sex organs. So that would include the penis in the male and the female structures, including the vulva labia. What exactly does the pelvic floor do? The pelvic floor has a few roles, very important ones, to support those organs that Michelle talked about. So it supports the the bladder, the uterus and the vagina and the bowel. It provides structural support to keep them in the right position inside the pelvis. It also provides closure to the sphincters or the openings, which helps give us control over our bladder and bowel. The pelvic floor has other functions as well related to sexual function. So it's actually quite complex and does some very important things. The muscles of the pelvic floor, those walls that I was talking about, can actually provide structural support to the visceral organs, but they also provide passage and connection from the external to the internal. Exactly, so that those walls are continuous with the floor, otherwise everything would fall out. So yes, those walls continue underneath those organs and form circular fibres around the openings, the passageway from the inside in the bladder, the vagina and the bowel to the outside. And that uh, contributes to another really important function that those parts of the muscle have to actually relax in order to let the contents out. So they have those two functions of tightening and holding to keep things in, as well as relaxing when that's appropriate. Would you say that the pelvic floor forms a certain sphincter for the passage of this contents? Yes, they're parts of the pelvic floor, the sphincter around the urethra and the anus, and around the vaginal entrance as well. So when we talk about continence and incontinence, what we're really talking about is sphincter function. Is that right? Continence is a really complex function. And when it goes wrong, so urinary incontinence, so leakage or wetting, there are a number of different causes for that. So the most common is urinary stress incontinence, which is cough, sneeze, laugh, jump, run, and that is very much a sphincter function. And there are different mechanisms that contribute to that sphincter function. So there's the urethra and the integrity and the healthiness of the urethra, which is the tube that runs from the bladder to external. And in that structure, there's a lining, a mucosa. There's a sphincter, a muscle, an external sphincter muscle. So it's like a valve or a washer. And then there is also the contribution from the pelvic floor musculature that help to support the urethra in its correct position. Then other factors are the way that that urethra works is determined by the nerve supply to the urethra. So if the nerve supply has been altered by surgery, if the urethral health has been affected by surgery or by radiation or by ageing, then those factors will increase the chance of stress incontinence, cough, sneeze, laugh, leakage. The other type of urinary incontinence is urge incontinence, and that's the classic key in the door, can't make it to the toilet, desperate to go, and leakage occurs on the way to the toilet. So that is quite different to the cough, sneeze, laugh leakage, which is an activity-related leakage. So that urge leakage is very much related to the nerves of the bladder. 
the bladder's got two jobs. It's got to empty and it's got to store. And the nerves to the bladder is part of the autonomic nervous system. So the nerve supply to the bladder and the whole nerve supply that determines why we have control over our bladder function is quite complicated. First of all, as the bladder's filling, that volume gets to a certain point and the nerves that sense that volume will send a message up the spinal cord to the brain. The brain will then determine whether that's an appropriate time to go to the bathroom and will give a message that allows a number of things to happen. The autonomic nervous system, which allows the bladder muscle to contract And at the same time, the somatic nervous system allows the pelvic floor muscles to relax and you get a coordination of bladder emptying. If it's not an appropriate time to empty the bladder, the pelvic floor muscles can be brought into play by contracting and stopping leakage from happening when you don't want that to happen. So the control of the bowl and the contents of the bowl, those organs, is a dual system. So we have portions that we can control and portions that we can't control. We can strengthen and use those muscles just as if we went to the gym to strengthen and build and grow our bicep. So you can strengthen these muscles and improve your ability for continence. Those sphincters, they work as part of the whole of the pelvic floor muscle complex in that there are the two layers that we talked about, the bowl and the hands underneath. Those layers work together and the muscles and the sphincters work together. You can't really isolate or separate them. What we'll do is practice that now because it's not as simple as it sounds. In fact, some people have quite a bit of trouble isolating and contracting the muscles in the right way. Wherever you are now, relax. If you're sitting down, let everything relax and feel your pelvic floor sitting on the chair. Now, think about your pelvic floor muscles around your front, middle and back passages, or for the men, just around your front and back passages. Now, I want you to think about tightening and drawing up inside around those openings. Okay, we'll do it together. Relaxing first, ready, now. Squeeze and tighten and pull up inside. Hold it there and now let go and feel those muscles relax. So that's essentially a pelvic floor muscle contraction. But a lot of people have trouble getting that right and they may need someone to help assess and instruct them on how to do those exercises correctly. So that's where a pelvic floor physiotherapist like yourself would come in. Yeah, so for a lot of women and men who have problems with continence where the muscles are not working correctly, voluntarily, because they've been weakened or damaged by surgery or childbirth, those muscles won't naturally return to the strength they had before in all cases. So we actually have to work hard to get that strength back. And this is where a pelvic floor physiotherapist would assess your muscles and teach you how to do the exercises correctly given your starting position. It's important that those muscles can work when you're actually leaking and for most women and men they leak with coughing, sneezing or exercising when they're standing up. So it's important to do some exercises standing up, not just sitting down. But we mustn't forget that in fact some women don't require the same kind of exercise program because they have increased resting tone in their pelvic floor and this may be contributing to some of those other pelvic floor disorders such as sexual dysfunction and chronic pelvic pain. 
So for those women and men, they may in fact require a different approach, still pelvic floor muscle therapies, but with a different focus, more on the ability to relax the increased tone as well as use their pelvic floor appropriately. So these same exercises that we use for incontinence or leakage, we also use for pelvic organ prolapse, is that right? Exactly, the exact same muscles. So these are the same muscles that you could strengthen and build if you had a case of prolapse. Exactly. What exactly is prolapse? So the terminology is pelvic organ prolapse. And this is a completely different problem to urinary incontinence, although there are some women who will have both. There are some women who have urinary leakage, cough, sneeze, laugh leakage or urge leakage. There are some women who have pelvic organ prolapse, which is where the vaginal wall or uterus descend and come through or down to or beyond the vaginal opening. And there are some women who have both. So pelvic organ prolapse is essentially like a hernia that is a weakness due to often a combination of the ligaments, the connective tissue, the fascia between organ structures and the muscles. So all three components of that could be potentially weakened and cause the weakness to occur. The way that people feel or complain about pelvic organ prolapse is that they might feel a bulge or a vaginal lump coming out. They might feel something coming down. Sometimes there are quite vague symptoms. Sometimes they might feel a dragging sensation. The other symptoms that are associated with pelvic organ prolapse is that it can affect urinary urgency and it can affect bladder emptying because there's a bulge there that gets in the way of the bladder emptying. It can affect bowel emptying. So if there's a bulge between the vagina and the rectum, the motion, the stool could get caught in that and then the person has difficulty with emptying their bowel. It can cause sexual dysfunction. If it's very severe, then it can cause other problems such as ulceration, bleeding. In really uncommonly, in very elderly, neglected cases, it could even put back pressure on the kidney. And there might be someone, an elderly person who comes in with kidney failure because they've had a neglected severe prolapse. There's a term called proxidentia, which is the worst possible prolapse that there is. And it's where everything is everted and outside the uh, vaginal opening. It can be very large. It's obviously very uncomfortable. In, in a sort of crude way, you could make an analogy of a sock that's turned completely inside out. The risk factors for pelvic organ prolapse would be age, childbirth and in particular childbirth that is associated with muscle trauma. So where those pelvic floor muscles have been injured like a sports injury, like a hamstring injury, those muscles of the pelvic floor can be injured during childbirth, during vaginal delivery, in particular with big babies and with forceps delivery. There's an increased chance of those muscles being injured and that increases the chance of prolapse occurring and it increases the chance of prolapse recurring even after surgery. The muscles are actually in the two layers, as Michelle described, the muscles in the bowl and the muscles below the bowl, the hands, which will be sitting below those organs, the rectum, the uterus and the bladder. When you contract the muscles, though, because it's a voluntary exercise, 
You've got control over both of those layers of muscles, but you can't independently contract one or the other. So when you do your pelvic floor muscle exercises, you're actually contracting both those layers together. That's a a good way of explaining it because when we want to check when someone's doing a pelvic floor contraction, we don't have to perform an examination to do that. We can visualise and actually inspect, look at the perineum and the vulva, the outside of the vaginal opening, and see whether that person is performing a pelvic floor contraction adequately just by inspection. To some extent. To some extent, that's, some extent. That's right. But the perineal layer is very thin and weak compared to the deeper layer inside. So you may have not much that you can see on the outside layer, but in fact, there might be some muscle contraction going on deeper inside. It sounds like prolapse, similarly to incontinence, can be quite debilitating and difficult to deal with. How do we manage such a condition? First of all, it is very common to have some degree of movement of the vaginal wall or uterus post-vaginal delivery and a small degree of prolapse where the person doesn't even feel that there is any problem, which is just noted when they perhaps go for a pap smear to their GP. It may require no intervention, but it may benefit from some change in lifestyle such as avoiding chronic constipation, avoiding chronic cough, avoiding repetitive heavy lifting, and then concentrating on the pelvic floor muscle exercises that are going to help support the vaginal wall and uterus. That's right. And in that way, somebody may be able to prevent their very mild stage of prolapse from progressing to a stage where they're actually feeling it and being bothered by it. The other treatment that we use, particularly in women after menopause, is that there will be some symptoms that are often attributable to postmenopausal change. And we find often that topical vaginal estrogen hormone replacement will often make people feel much more comfortable. They don't reduce the prolapse, but they would alleviate some of the symptoms associated with prolapse. In terms of more severe stages of prolapse, so prolapse is measured in terms of stages. Zero is none, one is within the vagina, two is descending to one centimetre above the hymen to one centimetre below, so around the vaginal opening. And stage three and four are more severe protrusion of the leading edge of the prolapse, whether that be the front wall, the back wall or the uterus. And then those greater stages of prolapse, patients are going to be much more symptomatic and require symptom relief and the types of symptom relief that are available to us would be either a vaginal support pessary which is a soft rubber or plastic device that sits in the vagina a bit like diaphragms that were used in the past for contraception that supports the vaginal wall or surgery. So it seems as though treatment options are maybe divided into symptom relief and then things that will prevent the prolapse in the first place and that might be divided into strengthening the wall or reducing pressure on the organs in the first place. Yes and we'd use that first strategy, the the prevention strategy first and the treatment for symptomatic prolapse, yes either a pessary or surgery. So does that mean that people who've had cesarean deliveries aren't at risk of vaginal prolapse? the risk of women who've had caesarean deliveries is far reduced. Vaginal delivery would be the biggest risk factor for pelvic organ prolapse. There are other risk factors and they would be connective tissue disorders, ageing. So for instance, I've seen nuns, elderly nuns with pelvic organ prolapse. So there are certain inheritable and age factors 
And we discussed also chronic cough and chronic straining may uh, be also contributory, but the overwhelming risk factor would be vaginal delivery. Is pregnancy itself a risk factor for prolapse? Large studies have been performed that have compared women post-childbirth and compared women who've had exclusive caesarean delivery versus elective versus vaginal delivery, instrumental deliveries, and caesarean delivery is very much protective for pelvic organ prolapse. Not so for urinary incontinence as much. So I guess one of the surgical procedures that you mentioned is this mesh procedure. Could you talk a little bit about that? There is a very long background to that discussion. So first of all, if we go back to urinary incontinence, the surgical treatment for that was either a sling, which supports the urethra, and that sling traditionally was made out of the patient's own tissue. So it was the rectus sheath tissue on the abdominal wall or the outer thigh fascia, the fascia lata. And that sling was harvested and used as a sling to sit below the urethra. The alternative to that was a colpo suspension, and that was an operation using sutures. In the mid-90s, an Australian actually, and a Scandinavian, developed a mid-urethral sling made out of polypropylene so that you would avoid the wound problems that come from harvesting a sling. Prior to that, there were other sling materials that were used that weren't very good. They weren't very biocompatible. So there was materials such as Silastic and Gore-Tex, and there were problems with reoperation rates. So since polypropylene was used for mid-urethral slings for urinary incontinence, since the late 1990s, that's become the gold standard surgery for stress urinary incontinence, for cough, sneeze, laugh leakage. The most widely studied surgery for stress incontinence, now there's probably 15,000 women in about almost 38 um, randomised controlled trials for that. So very effective treatment, low complication rate, and that is less than the complication rate associated with the traditional surgeries. When the commercial companies that developed those mid-urethral slings saw the success of that procedure, this coincided with a much more robust or self-critical analysis of the results of surgery for pelvic organ prolapse that occurred in the gynecological literature. There were studies that looked at objective cure rate, in other words, a perfect anatomical result with no movement of the vaginal wall after surgery. In reality, that's very hard to achieve. But the studies published a high reoperation rate and quite a low objective cure rate for prolapse surgery using a traditional native tissue vaginal repair of the front wall of the vagina. The front wall of the vagina, vaginal prolapse, so cystocele, is the most common type of prolapse. So the, the combination of the poor results with native tissue that was being published the good results with using a synthetic material and the introduction of synthetic mesh also for hernia surgery and getting better results with mesh reinforcement for hernia surgery motivated the commercial companies and the clinicians involved to try and use a mesh reinforcement to get better results for prolapse surgery, which is a type of mesh. And that also was performed in the context of the operation that was done for women who developed prolapse after hysterectomy. The most successful operation for that was a 
abdominal operation that used mesh to support the vagina. So all those issues combined to lead to the development and introduction of mesh reinforcement procedures, kits that were developed by various companies. And that's where the transvaginal mesh surgery discussion arises from. However, what's misunderstood is that the current class action in Australia relates to transvaginal mesh for prolapse surgery, but they've also included sling surgery as well. And we've already said that transvaginal mesh for sling surgery for urinary incontinence is very successful, very widely performed, has a low complication rate of about 1% to 2% of mesh exposure, mesh pain. However, the mesh reinforcement for prolapse surgery, while it does give a better result on the front wall of the vagina, it comes, we've come to realise, at a higher rate of complications that are very problematic. So when it comes to the two different types of using mesh for bladder incontinence versus vaginal prolapse, what about those anatomically lead to the complications you're describing with the difference in mesh? The material is exactly the same. It's polypropylene. The sling that's used for stress incontinence is a one centimetre wide tape. It's a very small amount of mesh that's used in a specific area to support the urethra. When prolapse mesh reinforcement was developed, originally it was performed as a self-cut mesh. So the surgeon would cut mesh that's used for hernia repair and tailor it to support that area of the vagina that they wanted to support. And the length of the vagina is a much larger area. And the vaginal epithelium, the lining of the vagina, is quite thin compared with the abdominal wall where hernia mesh is used. And so therefore the that that foreign implant is very close to the vaginal lining. So the problems that are seen are what's known as mesh exposure. In other words, a small amount of mesh or some amount of mesh is exposed to the vaginal through the vaginal lining. And that can occur at, at an early stage or even at a later stage. That problem can also occur with abdominally placed mesh, but less often. And there are some situations, apart from mesh exposure, where in the technique to insert the mesh, it may have been folded. It will have some degree of fibrosis that occurs with scarring. And we've discovered with time that there are certain characteristics of mesh that are better. So lighter weight meshes, wider pores are better than the older meshes that were used 10 years ago. The FDA brought two warnings, one in 2008 and an update in 2011, where they were seeing more cases of these problems. And the two big problems are mesh exposure or mesh pain, which results in revision surgery. The FDA is the American authority that controls devices, and they issued a a warning. The TGA, which is the Australian equivalent of that authority has control over devices and drugs. And the TGA have recognised that uh, there have been concerns and health risks associated with the introduction of a number of devices. And they are about to upregulate all mesh for all indications, including hernia, incontinence and prolapse, to a class three device 
which is in concert with the European regulatory framework. So class three devices will require their own evidence before introduction rather than being introduced based on a previously used device. So if someone is experiencing these symptoms of either incontinence or prolapse, what would the next step be? They should see their healthcare professional who will comprehensively assess them and work out the best treatment for that person at the time. And treatments should be evidence-based. We know from research what uh, the most effective treatments are for which condition. And people would be then advised to start with the least invasive, most effective treatment for them. Often this is conservative therapies because they have high level of evidence for working with very low risk and side effects. So for incontinence and prolapse, they may be advised to start with pelvic floor muscle exercise training and lifestyle modification appropriate to their symptoms. And if that's not helping or it's not the appropriate treatment for that person, they may be referred on for more specialist advice. There are lots of resources out there. So we are very lucky in Australia. We have the Continence Foundation of Australia, so the other CFA. And that is a resource where there's a very active online presence. There is information, leaflets, brochures in many different languages. There is a toilet map. There is a helpline. There are continence nurses that are in the end of that telephone so that they can give advice over the phone. With regard to the special situation of women who've had complications from mesh surgery, then there is also a activity currently through Safer Care Victoria that is developing a helpline for those women and tertiary centres such as Monash Medical Centre, who will be able to provide multidisciplinary care for that group of women to alleviate those symptoms. And so for medical students at home who might want to study a little bit more about this topic, what are some resources that they would use? There are some very good Cochrane reviews on urinary incontinence and treatment for prolapse are both conservative and surgical. The patient information leaflets that are on the Continence Foundation of Australia website or the International Urogynecology Association, freely downloadable, are, are actually, they're directed for patients, but they're very good resources for medical students as well. And if you would like to pursue urogynecology, then there is a two-volume international consultation on incontinence that the ICI that is uh, the Bible and that is uh, reproduced every two or three years. There are also some terrific websites that patients or healthcare professionals or students may like to access. As Anna mentioned, the Continence Foundation of Australia, there's a website called Pelvic Floor First, which gives a lot of information about pelvic floor exercises and general exercise that people may be able to do who do have incontinence and prolapse. There's bladderbowel.gov. So there's a lot of online information and that free helpline of the CFA is, is fabulous because people can ring and confidentially receive advice over the phone and be directed to the right resource for them. I think that's all we have time for today. I want to thank our expert panel, Anna, Helena and Jonathan. And until next time, let's all practice our pelvic floor exercises. Remember to subscribe to the Ask Anatomist podcast. And follow us on Twitter. If you have a question, don't hesitate to ask an anatomist. Use the hashtag AnatQ.